All right, well, a blessed afternoon, evening to you, uh, Springfield Church of Christ. I'm actually recording this on Tuesday afternoon outside, and it's a beautiful day. I hope that tomorrow will be as well. Uh, if you hear me screaming or have a lot of commotion in the background, uh, we have bees all around our house now, so I may be dodging them while I'm praying and doing our Bible study tonight. But let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just come before you grateful that you're a God that communicates with us, that you do so not only in all of the universe and in all of creation, but Father, you do it in your word, and you did it best of all in the living word of Jesus. Father, everything we need we find in you, and I just thank you for your grace. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for the strength that you provide for each of us. Uh, I thank you for the relationships we have, and uh, Father, I thank you for the understanding, the compassion, and the, uh, the wisdom to manage them. And I just pray that you find us faithful in our study, find us faithful in our followership of you, because you're a God worth serving, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our last session tonight in the letter of Jude. Of course, uh, a short letter of 25 verses that we've turned into five lessons now. <laughs> but I, I hope you've been pleasantly surprised at just how the power of the Holy Spirit has packed it full of great things. You know, God is good, and His Word is sweet. And this evening, we're going to focus on uh, Jude, verses 17 through 25. And like every part of the Bible, this letter has a great deal to teach us, I think, in this day and age. One of the most disturbing features of the drift in our culture today is the drift away from the idea that there is uh, any absolute truth that can be known. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 in the New Living Translation says, So we must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard, or we may drift away from it. Charles Stanley once wrote about spiritual drifting, a gradual wandering away from God and His will that takes place when a believer ceases to steer towards the Lord intentionally. Uh, we become like a boat without oars and we're set loose upon the waters, and he or she can make a slow and lazy glide away from the good practices like obedience, uh, regular Bible study and prayer, uh, assembling with fellow Christians. And there are consequences for slipping into uncharted and dangerous waters. A life outside of God's will and drifting is therefore a sin. The Holy Spirit can prick the conscience to send a message when you're off course, but a drifter is prone to ignore the warnings. And if a Christian continually excuses his wandering and denies sin, his conscience gradually becomes numbed. And a person who becomes desensitized to wrongdoing has paved the way for more sinful behavior with less and less guilt. And I don't think I can imagine a more dangerous or difficult situation. As the drifting believer's conscience becomes anesthetized, his spiritual ears become deadened and truth just doesn't find an entrance because he's invited the wrong attitudes and philosophies of this world into his thinking process. And what's more, the heart becomes hard to the things of God. We shrink away from testimonies about uh, divine power and grace and mercy uh, or the belief that God actually works and moves in our world today. And uh, many people avoid situations that might reawaken the conscience and stir the spirit to repentance. And people drift away from God in search of more, more freedom, more choices, uh, more pleasure. But since the consequences are a hard heart, a numb conscience, and dead ears, 
what they actually end up with is less and less while they pursue what they think is more and more. The drifting believer sacrifices a victorious life in Christ for an existence that's devoid of any permanent satisfaction or solution for life. You know, the Bible is entirely clear that God has revealed to us His truth in His living Word, Jesus Christ, and in the written Word of the Bible. I love what the 20th century writer G.K. Chesterton said. He was a great defender of uh, the Word and a contender for the truth of Christianity. And he's left a lot of memorable sayings behind. You can just Google online and look at some of the great things he said. But uh, this is a line from his book, The Everlasting Man. He says, and I quote, A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. In its 2,000 years of history, the Christian church has often uh, succumbed to the temptation to be carried along by the flow of the stream at whatever was the spirit of the age. Whenever it does that, it compromises faith and it exhibits a deadness. But a living church based on the eternal Word of God and Scripture will always challenge contemporary culture, and we will always swim against the tide of the times. When the, Bible is, uh, when the church is living by the Bible, it demonstrates life and a real cutting edge as God intends. This short letter of Jude makes a very strong link, I think, between what we believe and how we behave. It's an uncompromising stance against those who would distort the truth and live uh, compromised or ungodly lives. Heresy, immoral, and godly living, uh, I think we can all agree, has penetrated the Christian church from New Testament times. And in one sense, we should find it uh, it's reassuring. It's, it's not a recent phenomenon. We don't have to work hard to make the Bible relevant. It does very well on its own. The Word of God is always relevant. It's always contemporary because it's eternally true. And the brief letter of Jude is an appeal to us to contend in our generation uh, for the eternally true faith and to live that faith out in a godly way. It's an assault on error. It's an encouragement for us to live holy and Christ-like lives. You know, as Christians, we are, we are to know what's true, and we're to practice what's true by living lives that are consistent with what we say we believe. The book of Jude, uh, in general, in the nine verses that we're looking at uh, today, it's a call to be alert. It's a call to be uh, vigilant, a call to discerning and, and to be discerning and to be aware of our need to grow in grace and holiness and to care for each other. We learned last week in our review that Jude is a letter that's addressed to all the members of the church fellowship, not just the leaders. Uh, it's addressed to every one of us. And so we have to see it as speaking uh, deliberately to each of us intentionally. For convenience, I, I think we can separate those last nine verses into five different parts. Uh, verse 17 and 18, first, which is, is to remember the words of the apostles. Verse 19, if you don't remember these, we're going to go back through these, of course. Verse 19, uh, again, it's a reminder to beware of false teachers and those who would distort or change the truth. Uh, verse 20 and 21, which is to grow in the faith and holiness Verses 22 and 23, which uh, says to care for each other, but to be discerning. And then at last, Jude's going to close in verse 24 and 25 with uh, another beautiful doxology in Scripture. Uh, so, so let's go through each of these five different sections here to close out our study. First, uh, we'll look at the first few verses and, and remember the words of the apostles. I mean, right back in the times of the New Testament church, there, the, there were those around who wanted to rewrite God's Word, who wanted to change, dilute, or distort the content of the Christian faith. 
and the revealed Word of God from the very beginning. Uh, and, and that shouldn't be a surprise because from the beginning of human history in the Garden of Eden, uh, that was Satan's goal in tempting man to doubt the Word of God. Uh, do you remember Satan's words to Eve? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Satan always attacks our minds and would seek to cause uh, to first to doubt and then disobey God's word and law. Doubt so frequently leads to disobedience. Uh, in verse 17, Jude says, both to his hearers then and to us today, remember who gave you the word and remember what they said. Uh, in his earthly ministry, the Lord had many disciples and followers, but he only had a few that were hand-selected to be apostles. They were eyewitnesses of his ministry, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, and they included Paul, an apostle born out of time, uh, who had a dramatic and life-changing encounter with the risen and glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was after his conversion he disappeared uh, for three years into the desert of Arabia, and during that time the Holy Spirit instructed him in the ways of God. He emerged from that desert time ready to communicate divine truth. And uh, if you're frustrated the Lord isn't working through your life the way you want him to, uh, you might be in that time of preparation. The Apostle Paul was for three years. You know, the Lord speaks to believers so they'll comprehend the truth, they'll conform to the truth, and communicate the truth. Uh, that's a roadmap for discipleship for each one of us. And what happened during Paul's desert years was only the beginning, really, of a lifelong process if you go to the book of Galatians in the first chapter, in the 11th and 12th verse, he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, it's not of a human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Direct revelation. In verse 16 and 17, he'll say, I didn't consult a man. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. All the apostles had a commission by Jesus to carry the good news of the gospel of salvation into the entire world. Jesus had taught them. They'd learned from him. They'd been sent out by him. And they'd received from him the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised uh, that beautiful guidance in uh, John chapter 16, verse 13. And he said, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The apostles began to communicate and record the truth of the gospel. They were honest, reliable, and verifiable men guided by God to record the truth. And yet we know from 2 Corinthians 11 that right from the start, Paul encountered individuals that he expressed as false apostles, uh, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ. And then he said in 2 Corinthians 11, it's no wonder because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Whenever something real is given, you can almost count the counterfeit will usually uh, be right on its tails to appear. And that happened early in the Christian church, way back in the New Testament. It still happens today, of course. And it's one of the reasons we have so many uh, questionable assemblies and, and churches and messages. 
false apostles, false teachers began to appear. And so it's necessary for believers, it's necessary for the church to apply a test to protect itself against false teaching. Since the risen Christ committed his faith to the apostles, one of the key tests has always been, is this what the apostles taught? You know, a river's purest at its source. And so you go back, and the apostolic teaching was and still is the test of truth. In verse 17 and 18, Jude would say to them and to us, remember what the apostles told you. They prophesied in these last times, uh, the period from Pentecost until the return of Jesus at his second coming, that there's going to be scoffers and mockers that will deny the word of God, and they'll follow their own ungodly desires. Now, I'm guessing some of you want to clarify. What does it mean to scoff, right? Uh, it, it, It means to make light of faith. It means to minimize the importance, or at worst, to mock, uh, to deride and ridicule, maybe even to make fun of those who believe in God's absolute truth. Scoffers are people who speak contemptuously of Christian belief and morality, that there is a right, there is an honorable or a just way to live that pleases God. And Judah's echoing what you can find uh, the Apostle Peter saying in 2 Peter 3.3, You'll find Paul saying it in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3. Uh, You'll find John saying it in 1 John 2.18 and and 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. And can I share with you one of my favorite quotes uh, from Ravi Zacharias? Uh, It's from his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, The Absolute Claims of the Christian Message. Uh, False teachers promote false gods. And so I I think it connects very well. But Ravi Zacharias writes this. He said, I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I remain in him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future. I remain with him certain about my destiny. I came amid the thunderous cries of a culture that has 330 million deities. I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be all-inclusive. See, the warning is given repeatedly, and we must take it seriously that these scoffers are following their own ungodly desires And we are to have nothing to do with them because they remake God in their image rather than the other way around. And the Word of God condemns them for what they want to do and how they live. And so they distort, they change, they dilute the Word of God. And we see that at work in the church today. Some people today, even in high places of visibility in the church, uh, you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, I've got intellectual problems with the Bible. It's just full of errors, and often that's a cloak for the fact that they actually have moral problems with the Bible because they know the Bible's condemning what they're doing and how they're living. But it's they that need the change, not the teaching of the Bible. The only sure way to be convinced of the truth of the Bible is to obey it and practice it to the full. Distorting or rejecting the truth of the Bible invariably leads to ungodly living. And if you look at the last chapter of Revelation, you'll find a great uh, curse pronounced upon anyone who adds to or takes away from the Word of God. Look at the description of God's truth in Psalm 19, verse 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, much more than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And so Jude says, number one, remember the words of the apostles. The second thing, again, it's part of that is be wary of these false teachers. Why? Because they are individuals, he, he says, that would divide us, who follow mere natural instincts and don't have the Holy Spirit. It's been suggested that Jude has in mind people who thought themselves somehow spiritually superior to ordinary spirit-filled Christians. Now we have a warning here about people who create divisions. He says, in fact, to those who would divide in this way, very well then, you know, you ask for distinctions to be made, I'm going to give it to you. He said, the Holy Spirit of God does not, in fact, govern you at all. You have ceased to be ruled by God, you become so dehumanized and governed by animal instincts, you follow your own instincts. You're governed by your own uh, natural impulses. So far from being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's clear you don't have the Holy Spirit at all. You're not Christians. You're counterfeit. You're heretics. You're not living spiritual lives at all. Now, sadly, there are many around today in the Christian church just like that. We have to be discerning and alert. If they were there at the start of the church, they're going to be there today. Friends, there are good Christian people that skip out on church, but Satan never misses an assembly. If we've been made right with God by trusting in what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary, if we've received the Holy Spirit of God in our new birth, then we need nothing more, nor should we seek anything more. We have more than enough in Jesus and in his word. And even today, many true Christians have been confused and led astray by those who would claim super spirituality or super revelation or Christian superiority. And as a result, they've lost their commitment to the all sufficiency of Holy Scripture. We have to, like Jude warns us, exercise the most careful of discernment. So how do we do that? you want to be discerning friends first of all you got to pray like a psalmist <laughs> psalm 119 125 you pray for discernment i am your servant give me discernment that i can understand your statutes and pray for others discernment as well philippians 1 9 says this is my prayer uh, paul said i want your love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you can discern what is best and that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. You've got to pray for discernment. Secondly, you do it by testing out what people say against the word of God in Scripture. You know, Jesus gave this positive about the church in Ephesus. In John's Revelation, in Revelation 2.2, he said, I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. 
that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. We need to test what people say against the Word of God. Thirdly, we need to pay close attention to the Spirit of God. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 reveals that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and they cannot understand them because they're only discerned through the Spirit. The Scriptures say, He that doesn't have the Holy Spirit is none of His. A life truly filled with the Holy Spirit will always turn us away from the person concerned to glorify Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit's truly present, then the whole church, the whole body of Christ, the whole body of believers will be edified and built up. So let's be careful and discerning, and let's hold to a life that truly honors the Word and Spirit. Number three, okay? We've got, remember the words of the apostles, be wary of the false teachers. And number three, grow in faith and in holiness. Look at verses 20 and 21 in Jude. But you, dear friends, he writes, build yourself up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Friends, the Christian life must never stand still. The false teachers and the dividers tear down. As true Christian believers, we have to be involved in the business of building up, building up our own spiritual lives and building up the life of the local assembly of a church to which we belong. The foundation of Christian life is, in Jude's word, our most holy faith. And our most holy faith is the Christian revelation that was handed down to us from Jesus to the apostles to us recorded in Scripture. It is in this faith that we're to build one another up and ourselves. If we've truly come to faith, then a definite moral change of direction will occur in our life. We'll have made a break from the love of sinning. There'll be a reorientation of our gut and our desires. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've begun a journey that will be completed in eternity. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not perfect yet. We will still sadly sin, but we will not yield to sin, and we will daily seek to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We'll strive to obey God's laws as part of our love for Him, and we'll trust in His power to sanctify us and make us holy when we fail. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, we'll confess our sin and trust Him to be holy and just, to forgive us of that sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to continually call to mind that as Christians, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And we're to daily study the Scriptures and allow the living God to speak to us through His Word, to grow more like Jesus in our thought, uh, in our worldview, and in our actions. And as we do that, we, we will draw forever closer to the kind of life we were meant to live here and in heaven. We're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And it is most holy because it's utterly different. It's entirely set apart from any other way of living. It's utterly unique in the message it teaches, and it's entirely different in the moral change it produces in human lives. We're to build others and ourselves up in this uniquely true faith and live confidently in the, in the context of a directionless world. Obedience to the revealed truth in Scripture is central to our growth. 
you will not find a strong believer. You will not find a fruitful church uh, where the Bible is ignored or distorted and is not the final authority. It is absolutely essential, friends, that we make time for daily quality devotional time to seek the mind and purpose of God as we look at His Word. We have to do it in a regular and a disciplined way. It has to be an absolute priority. You know, members of the church in China used to have a saying, no Bible, no breakfast. (laughs) I wonder if that was our rule, how many of us uh, would be skipping breakfast? How many of us would go hungry? You notice that Jude tells us that we're to pray in the Spirit. That means we need to pray according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It means that, that we seek the will of God in our lives. We don't expect God to bless our own selfish plans or our own desires. God doesn't want to be a rubber stamp for what we want to do. But we want to be changed in heart and pray the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to say, God, not my will, yours be done. And we must never believe, friends, that we pray alone. The Holy Spirit of God joins with us when we pray because He knows the mind of God and He directs us in our praying. Romans tells us that when we don't know what to pray, He prays in groans that words can't express. And as we pray in this way, we develop our love for God and our joy in following Him. Jude says in verse 21, Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That's an echo of the prayer Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 15, 10, when he said, now remain in my love. It involves not just warm feelings, it involves obedience. John 15, 10 also says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. We obey it, we delight in his word, we we want to do what pleases him. And God's love is a distinctive love. It's not shallow. It's not sentimental. It's not broken. To love God is to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. That means we actively hate sin. To love God is to seek to please him by doing the things that he commands. But it also means we have hope. We look and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. As believers, we realize that on this earth, we have no abiding uh, eternal city, but we look for a city that is yet to come, whose builder and maker is God. Jude reminds us of that hope. Our Our eyes always have to be lifted heavenward and beyond this present life of change and decay. It's like the old song used to say, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere way beyond the blue. The Apostle Paul said to Titus in Titus 2.13, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter would say in 2 Peter 3.12, as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. As believers of God, we, we look earnestly for that day. And Jude reminds us of the certainty of the Lord's return. It's something wonderful that we all ought to look forward to. The full realization of eternal life that we've begun to experience since we came to a new birth in Christ. And it will be completed when he comes to take all believers home with him. Those three Christian graces of faith, hope, and love enable us to grow in our spiritual walk with the living God. 
All right. So one, remember the words of the apostles. Two, be wary of false teachers. Three, grow in faith and holiness. Number four, we're almost done. Care for one another, but be discerning. Jude 22 and 23 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You know, it's clear from that we have an obligation to each other. We're to be the kind of those who are in, you know, kind to those who are in spiritual need. We're to exercise spiritual discernment. There were undoubtedly those in the New Testament church as well as today who were beginning to waver in their faith, who were beginning to be assaulted by doubt. And it's important that well-taught, holy, and mature Christians come alongside such people just to give them a spiritual shoulder and help, to do, to do it with mercy and know that our faith uh, is, it needs to be strong and seek to convince them in the love and the kindness of Christ. We need to be maturing believers, a church of depth and discernment. And some, some doubters need positive and tender care. Some immature believers uh, can behave like little children insofar as they think that their way is always the right way. And sometimes if we tackle them head on, they become more stubborn. You know, it's not enough simply to refute false doctrine. We've got to support them and lead them in love and patience and fear. And every young Christian, whether they recognize it or not, they need a mature believer to help them stand, walk, and grow in the faith. Like Timothy, they needed a Paul who reminds them as he did in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. You set an example for the believer in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Many mature Christians need to be alert and watchful and assume responsibility. Take up the mantle. Take responsibility for those that are younger in the faith. Clearly, some people need more drastic uh, leadership. They need more drastic measures because they're on a dangerous path of decline and backsliding, and they're in urgent need of a rescue. A direct frontal approach that might be the only answer. They need, says Jude, to be snatched out of the fire and saved. And it may be that Jude has in mind people that have left the fellowship of the church. And they're now part of the group that have just kind of fallen away from the faith. They need snatched from the fire because these days are evil. You know, drastic action is sometimes needed to, to rescue unstable believers from the clutches of undermining influences. False teachers are lethal and and really can destroy families and lives. The reference that that Jude uses goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2 is is the first. And it says there, the Lord said to Satan, uh, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? Snick? There you go. (laughs) A burning stick snatched from the fire? Uh, And Amos chapter 4, verse 11. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. In the Zechariah passage, the people of Israel had been brought back from captivity in Babylon and restored to their own land. And God saw the people as having been a burning stick just grabbed from the fire. In Amos chapter 4, God is is reproaching the people because they didn't listen to his warning and judgment. 
They were sticks saved from the burning, but they didn't appreciate the salvation. Now, if we really discern believers that are in huge danger because they've wandered very far from the faith, friends, we have to be willing to put our hand in the fire. We have to be willing to take drastic measures. And it's a warning to us in the second part in verse 23 as well. It says, To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We have to be careful as we reach out for others that we don't put our own spiritual welfare at stake. And trying to help those that have strayed and erred, we have to be careful that we don't become trapped ourselves. Just as it can happen tragically that that a would-be rescuer can be drowned himself if he's trying to save a swimmer with difficulty, an unstable believer can take you down. We have to be wise. Satan can use uh, the situation to damage us and we, be, we can become more stained ourselves. And there's a principle that Jude is laying down for us. Even the strongest believer must not think that they're beyond uh, Satan's influence. If we're Christians, then we have in our new birth exchanged the filthy rags of our own righteous acts for the garments of Jesus' salvation, the robe of His righteousness that we receive through Him. And when Jude uses the phrase, hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, he means we have to actively oppose evil and sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions. We must, of course, love God's people, but hate sin in every form. Wherever sin is, Satan has his foothold to exploit the situation. And it takes a deep knowledge of God's word, a faithful and a close walk with God, and an understanding of of Satan's strategies and the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. It requires a mature spiritual discernment uh, in these situations to seek the aid of of wise and mature believers as well. So in our care for one another, spiritual discernment is essential, as is holy and godly living. You know, God says to us in His Word in in 1 Peter 1.15, Be holy, for I am holy. And in Hebrews 12, 4, without holiness, no one will see God. Our lives are to be one of growing distinctiveness as we look for the coming of the Lord. And for that day, we'll see our Savior face to face. The Apostle Peter ends his second letter on this theme. And indeed, it's a theme that runs all through Scripture. He writes as Jude writes that since this is the future, what awaits us, he says, in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, so what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Friends, I pray that's our resolve, to live holy and godly lives that are disciplined, that are prayerful and ruled by the word and and the truth of God. Friends, uh, we've talked about remembering the word of the apostles, being wary of false teachers, growing in faith and holiness, caring for one another, and being discerning. And now we come to our last point, which is a doxology. Verses 24 and 25. Although it's sad to end this little letter, friends, it is a beautiful way to end it. Jude writes to him that's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault And with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen.
Jude ends his letter with a tremendous regard for the God that has led him. There's three times in the New Testament that you'll find that phrase uh, that God uh, is able. Romans 16.25, Paul gives praise to the God that's able to strengthen us. He's the one person that can give us a foundation for life that nothing and no one can ever shake. And now in these days, don't we need that? In Ephesians 3.20, Paul gives praise to the God that's able to do far more than we can ever ask or even dream of. He's the God that can grace man so much and yet never be exhausted and, and, and never claim uh, too much. And here Jude offers the third time that God is able. Look what he's able to do. He's able to keep us from slipping. The Greek word is used of a sure-footed horse that doesn't stumble, of a man that doesn't trip into air. Psalm 121.3, he'll not let your foot be moved. Uh, to walk with God is to walk in safety even on the most dangerous and the most slippery path. I think of mountaineers, uh, climbers that are roped together. So even if the most inexperienced climber should slip, the skilled mountaineer is, is already dug in. He can take his weight. He can save him. Even so, friends, if you are bound to God, he's able to keep you safe. He'll keep you from slipping. Jude also says he, he's able to make us stand blameless in his presence and glory. The word for blameless is, is characteristically a sacrificial word. It's the one that's used of an animal which is without spot or blemish, and so it's a fit sacrifice to be offered to God. The amazing thing is, friends, when we submit ourselves to God, His grace makes our lives uh, nothing less than a sacrifice worthy of Him. And then He can bring us into His presence overjoyed and triumphant. You know, the natural way to think of entry into the presence of God is in fear and in shame and guilt. But by the work of Jesus Christ and in the grace of God, we know that we can go before the throne of God with boldness. We can go with joy and, and with all fear banished because perfect love has driven out all fear. Through Jesus Christ, God the stern judge has become known to us as God the loving Father. One last thing. You know, we usually associate the word Savior with Jesus Christ. But did you see how Jude here attaches it to God? You see, he's not alone in this because God is often called Savior in the New Testament. And so we end with the great and the comforting certainty that at the back of everything, there is a great God whose name is Savior. The Christian has the joyous certainty that in this world, he lives in the love of God. And in the next world, he goes to the love of God. The love of God is at once the atmosphere we breathe, the goal of all our living. Well, friends, that brings us to the end of this beautiful little book. We'll change gears next week, and if any of you have a desire uh, for study, go ahead and text me at uh, bill.warax at springfield, or excuse me, bill.warax at gmail.com or at 925-6039. I do appreciate the questions that some of you have been sending me in, in relationship to our studies. Love to hear from you about your health, what's going on in your family, uh, to direct my prayers, uh, just to know that you're listening uh, to these podcasts as well. 
I want to thank you for being with us these past many months as we've gone through uh, first the book of Romans and now through the book of Jude. Uh, God be with you. God bless your week. And uh, let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the one that knows how many blessings are found in the smallest of daily events and occurrences, things that we miss with our human eyes. And so I pray that you give us the eyes of your spirit, that you could increase our gratitude, that, Father, your, your blessings would just blossom in us to your praise and to your glory. For all that we have, each breath, each moment of thought, is a blessing that is just resplendent to be made in your image. Father, we love you. You're a wonderful Savior, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.